Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're going to look in the New Testament. We're going to move on from the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 10. And we're continuing this theme of, of love. And this very challenging and inspiring and amazing theme of love. So Matthew 10, 34 to 35. Now, can anybody remember the verse we were looking at last, at a couple of verses last night? Remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So we're thinking of the love of the people of God for their God. And we're moving into the New Testament. And coming across some of the most challenging teaching of Jesus when it comes to love. So, um, let, let me pray. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the privilege it is to be here for each other, for the worship that we're able to do together. And I pray through your spirit, be present with us, speak to us, encourage us, uh, challenge us, uh, help us to draw close to you in worship and praise in Jesus' name. Now, I mentioned, or uh, Steve interviewed me last night, and I mentioned um, we have our mother-in-law living with us, and she's about 90, and she needs a lot of care now. But Enos, my wife, was telling me a story about her in her younger life. And I thought, well, this was just the, a couple of days ago, so I thought, well, actually, this ties in a little bit with this text um, she worked uh, in her life in a, she was a, in sales quite a bit. Is anybody in sales here? Is anybody? Yeah, so a few salespeople. Okay, so she was in, working in a shop. Now, you have to go back in time here. This was a sort of old-style clothes shop, and it was a pretty high-end clothes shop. So it wasn't you just go in and wander about and choose your stuff and, and all of that. It was much more you go in and you have a sales assistant who will come over to you. And these were pretty wealthy people, so they wanted one-to-one -one service. And she was, she apparently was a deadly saleswoman, right? So she, would, she had the highest sales in the shop. She would come alongside these clients and she, would, she wouldn't be pushy. She'd come alongside and she'd suggest things. The try on clothes. She'd whip out a little pin cushion apparently and tuck in this here and tuck in that there and that'll sit really well with you here. And then what about this accessory and that accessory will go really well with this. And so she sold the most accessories of anybody in the shop and she also was brilliant at selling the stuff. There was, apparently they were color coded in the shop that maybe something had been in the shop for quite a while and it was um, probably maybe starting to go out of fashion or whatever. Or, and there was a bonus. If you could sell this stuff, you got bonus if you got rid of it. So she was really good at that. And she sold the most of this type of stuff. She sold the most accessories. And yet she was, and the, and the person would leave the shop and think, you know, I've got all this great stuff and feeling really good and, and never intended to spend all that money. And yet they felt they got a bargain. So she was just a great saleswoman. And uh, I was thinking about sales when I come to think of Matthew 10, 34 to 35. And let me suggest to you, Jesus is the worst salesman you've ever met. Jesus does none of that stuff. He isn't trying to make it easy. Um, in fact, you would think as, as we go through this text, Jesus is trying to make it as hard as possible for someone to follow him. 
That's very strange. But it's what he does. Let's, let's read this text together. Um, it's only a short bit. Let me paint a little bit of um, context. This is in one of these great... Matthew's Gospel is, has got a, a, about five big sections of teaching about discipleship. This is one of them. It starts in uh, chapter 10. Um, and it's all about mission. This, this section is about mission. The disciples are going out on mission and Jesus is teaching them around that theme. And uh, he says in verse 34, Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is some of the hard teaching of Jesus. It's a very challenging text. Um, and as we're, we're coming to think about this, the theme of love is right at the heart of this text. Um, but Jesus is warning them that what it means to follow him as a disciple and what it means to go out in mission is to expect opposition. And you can see that all the way through chapter 10. If We'll, we'll just sketch it very quickly. Um, earlier he said, um, go to the lost sheep of Israel. This is earlier verse 6 state. Um, Proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus is pronouncing the kingdom. The disciples are going out to, to also share this message. The Messiah has come. God is doing a new thing in Israel. You need to repent, come to him. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. There's power in this kingdom which has come. Freely you've received, freely give. But in doing so, as they go out, Jesus is warning them that as they go out, they're going to experience serious opposition and uh, this is where he doesn't sugar any pill he's not trying to soft soap anything here he says verse 17 you're going to be flogged in the synagogues trials before gentile rulers family betrayals verse 21 universally hated verse 22 persecution verse 23 being called followers of Beelzebul, Beelzebul the devil in verse 25. And he, he then encourages them by saying, well, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Now, that's pretty stuff. That's strong stuff, isn't it? It's hardly an attractive job description. It's hardly a big sales job of how this is going to be easy. It's not. Um, he is warning them that following the Messiah Entering the kingdom and this kingdom life is going to involve difficulty, challenge, opposition, trials. So let's look at, let's unpack this a little bit when we come to our actual text, verse uh, 34. So do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now that's sort of, a, that's, a, that's also a tough um, verse, isn't it? Because that's a bit confusing. Jesus didn't come to bring violence. He is a, Messiah of peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to Peter, put away your sword. You know, 
and he heals the guy's ear that Peter's just sliced off with his sword in the garden. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to engage in violence and, and, and warfare. He, he so what does he mean by when he says, I've come to bring a sword? Well, I think it's an image. It's a, it's a picture. It's a symbol that following him and his kingdom is going to involve opposition and difficulty and even persecution. And he, he goes further then and says, well, this, this sense of opposition and difficulty is going to go right into the family right into the heart of your closest relationships, there's going to be difficulty and opposition. And this is where he says, a man's father, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Maybe daughters-in-law is always against their mother-in-law, I don't know, but that's a caricature. But right at the heart of the family, there's, there's this going to be a difference of loyalties. There's going to be a challenge right in our closest relationships. The man's enemies will be members of his own household. The very last place you'd expect to find enemies is, is, is within your, that's the closest kinship relationships we have. And yet Jesus is saying to disciples, if you're following me, you could have even opposition and even enemies within your own household. And I think Jesus is being deliberately shocking as he, as he tends to be. He's really putting it up front and saying to them straight that they need to have no illusions in following him is going to be a challenging, difficult thing to do. Do not suppose, he says in verse 34. In other words, maybe we have all sorts of assumptions. Sometimes we can have assumptions. Well, being a Christian is leading to an easy life and, and it'll be a life of blessing and everything will be fine. And sometimes the gospel can be sold that way in a sense. It can be come and have all your needs met and it's all going to be easy. Jesus says, don't suppose. In other words, don't have these assumptions. Be realistic of what it means to follow me. And there can be opposition in that. Now, he's not saying that's a, a good thing. He's just saying that's a realistic thing that could happen and did happen, of course, to the disciples. Jesus' mission of peace won't be achieved without conflict. Jesus' mission and the kingdom of God is confronting powerful forces, spiritual forces in the Gospels of demonic forces in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark and Luke, particularly these conflicts of Jesus with the powers, but also political forces with Rome. And of course, Jesus ends up crucified um, with the opposition of both religious and secular political forces combined to put Jesus on the cross. So opposition is the inevitable consequence of faithful discipleship is what he's saying here um, and now what's all this got to do with love you think well yes yeah, so it came this weekend to hear all about love and it'll be lovely this is this is where love gets really tough because Jesus links all this challenge of discipleship and, and following him at whatever the cost to the theme of love so let's look at that for a minute let's see what have we got yeah we're still we're still on the right bit so he says um he says that this coming of Jesus and this where son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, that's actually quoting the Old Testament. It's actually a verse from Micah, chapter 7, um, and it's verse 6. And it's like in, in the Old Testament, these sort of trials and difficulties and oppositions were almost linked to expectations of a messianic age when the messiah would come it would be a time of conflict and difficulty and this is now being fulfilled with the coming of jesus 
And so he's saying this opposition really ties in with a sense of competing loves. And the disciples need to understand that following Jesus is a question of commitment and loyalty. Do you remember what I said last night about love? One way of looking at love is of allegiance, of loyalty. What do we love most will really show who we are. That book we mentioned last night, You Are What You Love. Um, and, and we show what we love and, and what we're really truly committed to, what we give our lives to, what, what really makes us passionate and we follow. That really shows what we're committed to and what we, what we love. And he's saying, if you're loving me, if you're going to love and follow me, that, that's a loyalty above any other loyalty, any other commitment. And that could cause you, and he's warning the disciples, it's going to cause them a whole heap of difficulty. And I think he goes right into the family because the family, of course, is our deepest loyalties, our deepest loves. Those around us who love us and we love them. And he's saying even at that deepest level of loyalty and, and love, Jesus is saying, the love you have for me is going to be above even family. That's very, very challenging stuff, isn't it? To be worthy of me, verse 27, he says it twice. To be worthy of me, you need to love me first, even above family. Now we need to ask, we need to, it's this tough question, is what does it mean to love Jesus even above family? Is he saying to, and elsewhere he says, you, you know, man who doesn't hate their mother, brother, sister. That's very strong language. And of course we need to understand that's sort of hyperbole. It's sort of saying, in terms of loyalty, the loyalty you have for me is above your family. And so in terms of relative terms, our love for Jesus is above any other love. So it isn't that we're actively to hate those around us, but in questions of loyalty and love, Jesus is claiming that sort of allegiance for himself. Now let me take a pause there and you think, Ooh. Let, me, let me pick on Steve. If Steve as a pastor and preacher was saying to you on a Sunday morning, you've got to love me above any other loyalty and follow me whatever I say, what would your reactions be? Maybe he does. <laughs> I know what my reaction might be. I'd be going, whoa, I'm out the door. I'm going the other way. Do you know what I mean? If any other human being is claiming that sort of loyalty, I don't know what your reaction to that would be. It's an incredible claim, isn't it? To say, give your whole lives to me, your whole loyalty. Any other loyalty you have about anything else, you've got to give it to me. I, to be worthy of me, you've got to love me wholeheartedly. Do you see what that echoes? The text we were looking at last night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Jesus is taking that that type of loyalty from the Old Testament, which was to God alone, and he's just claiming it for himself here in the New Testament. I mean, it's a thing that only God can do. And so this text, I think, is really powerful in saying Jesus' own identity. Here is God in the flesh, God the Messiah, who is claiming a loyalty for himself that's only appropriate for God. If any other human being is claiming that loyalty, our alarm bells should be going off because it's not appropriate and it's scary when people claim that sort of loyalty because it usually ends terribly and it usually ends in some sort of tyrant. But here is Jesus saying, as we follow him, we find life 
But that's the sort of loyalty that is worthy of Jesus. Let's, let's come back to the family. Now, you might think I'm going off on a tangent here. And you might think what I say is actually against the family. But it's, it's not. So hang on, hang on with me for a moment. I want to think about what does it mean to love Jesus above even family, even our closest, the people closest to us in the world. What does that mean? Um, today, the, the family in our modern world is, is going through huge change, isn't it? In terms of what constitutes a family, what constitutes marriage, what constitutes uh, a relationship. Um, and I think basically it's, it's where... Uh, there's there's huge inv well let me put it this way let me put it this way there's two things happening on one hand what constitutes the family has been deconstructed in our our day uh, it's been reshaped around recognizing the rights of two individuals in love of whatever gender and wherever you're coming from and that's what family is and that's just a that's a radical changing of the notion of family it's it, that's just a just a fact um, and on the other hand so on one hand, family's been deconstructed and changed. On the other hand, also, romantic ideas of the family are also held up as an ideal. So you've got these two things going on. And what I mean by that is marriage is still idolized. Um, although marriage's numbers are going down, this idea of romantic love and finding ultimate meaning in your, in your other perfect person who you're going to marry or be with, and that's love at the heart of that relationship is going to give you all the meaning of and purpose and joy in life, that whole romantic vision of life. And happiness, fulfillment, purpose is all invested in this image of finding this right person. And so you have the whole, whole almost industry of romance <coughs> and in films, in movies, of this idea of the perfect other. And somebody said, never before in human history has so much been invested in that one relationship that's going to give you all the meaning and purpose of life in the one other person. I think the average cost of wedding in Ireland, I looked this up in 2018, was 30,000 euros. I have two daughters and I thought, that's not happening. It's not happening. <laughs> no way. But it's incredible in terms of the, wed the marriage industry and how much is invested in this idea of perfection. It's amazing. So this idea of the perfect family and within that image of the perfect family, children are seen then as, the, as, as, the, as, as that which gives you real fulfillment and source of happiness for parents. Um, and, and so much is invested in this image of family that therefore those who don't fit into that category are sort of left out somewhere. Um, and, and so there's... there's these two things going on. On one hand, family's getting deconstructed. On the other hand, it's held up as this ideal with all its pressures and all the ideas of perfection at the heart of it. So why do I say all that? I think verse 37, it's telling us disciples are neither to pursue the ideal of a free, autonomous individual doing whatever they like, nor are they to idolize the family. There's a, there's a theologian I really like called Stanley Harwis, um, and he, he says quite a bit about the family, and he says, Christianity has been and will continue to be, if we're serious as Christians, a challenge to fa familial loyalties. And what he means by that is, being a Christian brings you into the family of God, into the people of God. 
And that is our ultimate loyalty as, as disciples of Jesus. Our ultimate loyalty lies there. And this is why Christianity doesn't idolize the family. On the one hand, the Bible has a lot to say, which is good about the family. The family is good. It's a source of stability. It's a place to raise children. It's between man and woman, etc. And, it, and it's, it's a huge, it's a great source of blessing. So I want to say that. I'm married nearly 30 years. I think it's not a bad thing. Um, but what I mean is, it's also as Christians, we need to be able to step back a little bit from that picture of the family to say, always, right from Jesus, all the way through church history, the church has said that the family is not the ultimate source of identity and meaning. It's not where we are, are ultimately investing ourselves in. And that gives a great space in Christian theology and in Christian history for singleness. Singleness is and should be within the church just as much a viable option as being married. Um, Christi Christians follow a Lord who remains single. And yet he was the most fully human person who ever existed. Paul, as you know, in the New Testament says, well, I wish all of you were like me. I'm, I'm single and I'm doing mission and I'm getting out there. And if you get married, you're going to have all sorts of other uh, responsibilities. I'd prefer if you just stayed single and got on with it. But he doesn't make it a law. He says, this is my preference. But he's, he values singleness. Also within the history of the church, uh, the early church, when you read a bit of church history, it's really quite remarkable how singleness was seen as the ideal and marriage was seen as very much secondary and in our culture it's much more the other way around marriage is the ideal and singleness is seen as a bit of a disaster within our culture um i'm showing my age here it's 2005 there was a film called um the 40 year old virgin anybody anybody see that film anybody anybody owe up to seeing that film it's not it's not a terrible film it's just a funny film but, but Steve Carell's in that movie, and you, you know, well, the, the title speaks for itself. But the whole theme of the movie is he's trying to be rescued. His friends are trying to rescue him from singleness and being a virgin, and that's, that's the whole gag of the film. But, but he's seen, basically, they're trying to rescue him from the disaster that they see of, of this single man who hasn't had sexual relationship, and it's seen as an absolute disaster in our culture if you're not sexually active, whether you're married or not. And our culture idolizes this, and this is, this is where you find meaning and significance. And so there's no place for celibacy. There's no place for singleness. And sex is invested in where you're really going to find meaning and fulfillment. If you don't have it, then you're missing out in some way. And so in that film, he's almost having to be rescued from himself. That's what his friends are trying to do. That's a deeply, deeply unchristian attitude to sex the body singleness and identity deeply deeply conflicted with what jesus is saying here there is no shame in singleness there is no shame in that and jesus is actually putting it the other way around saying for familial loyalties love for me comes first the other stuff is secondary we don't have our ultimate identity in our family let's let's move on from that to say what he let's let's consider another tough verse here there's really really tough stuff in this chapter and um 
So we're getting him right into it this morning. He says, well, let's, let's look at what it means then to love me wholeheartedly. What does it mean to love me with all your heart, soul, strength? What does it mean to give me that type of ultimate loyalty to follow Jesus? He says, well, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So he's right into the heart of Christian discipleship here, the cross, the cost of discipleship. That phrase was, comes from a, a person maybe many of you will know the name of, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, uh, wrote a famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, in the 1940s, uh, when he was a prisoner under the Nazis, and because he stood up against Hitler, uh, he was imprisoned, and at the end, just before the end of the Second World War, he was hung, uh, and he became a martyr. He was executed uh, by the Nazis in a, in a concentration camp at the end of the war. One of the great Christian theologians of the 20th century, one of the great writers of the 20th century, um, but also a tremendously courageous Christian who knew what it meant about the cost of discipleship. And this is what Jesus is talking about, who, the cost of discipleship. We're, we're so familiar, aren't we, with the image of a cross. It's everywhere. Um, people wear it as jewellery. You see it all around us, the, the structure of our churches, the graveyards, etc. And cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. Our very familiarity with it probably means just we, we get a little bit distant from just how horrific this image of a cross was. And when Jesus says this to the disciples, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, we need to put ourselves back a little bit into the minds of the disciples when they hear this. Because they're not looking at this from 2,000 years of church history and the cross is something, you know, something to be celebrated. They're looking at this from perspective of, of Jewish people under Roman Empire where there were lines of crosses into the cities when there was a time of revolution people were executed in multiple numbers um, along the streets into the city outside the city walls to say don't mess with us if you engage in rebellion revolution you're gonna you're gonna die this way and it was the most horrible form of execution it's left up there to rot, um, subject of persecution, mockery, shame. And, and for Jews, of course, it was a particularly shameful way to die because there's a text in Deuteronomy talks about cursed is somebody who has hung on a tree. And there's, there, for a Jew to be hung on a tree this way would, was a particular curse. It was a sign of shame and curse. And so it was a dreadful thing. The cross, there was nothing good about it. It was a dreadful. So for Jesus to say to this to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up a cross. That is a sort of mind-blowing thing to say to somebody. What the heck? What's that mean? That's an incredible thing to say. So to love me, you've got to follow wholeheartedly. To follow me, you have to take up a cross. Do you see what I mean about Jesus being a terrible salesman? He is not. He's not really saying this is, this is going to be easy. He's not saying it's just going to be simple. It's going to be tough. Of course, many Christians around the world know this. We are blessed to live in a place where we're not persecuted. And of course, many Christians know this experience today uh, in different parts of the world of the cost of following Jesus. But I, wanted, I want us just to think about and there's no easy question. Maybe take away this question later today when you've got some space. Maybe discuss it with others. 
What does it mean for you to take up a cross? What does it mean? Because basically it's saying to follow me is, it involves some sort of death. It involves some sort of death to the self, a willingness to die. And this is what he means. Let's, let's look at verse 39. I think, well, it's in here. Whoever's, um, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will find it. So have a, have a really reflect on that maybe a little bit today. What does it mean for, what have I, what's that mean to take up a cross? What does it mean for me to lose my life? What's that actually mean in practice? I can't give you an easy answer to that. I think it's a really, really difficult question. It's a really hard one to think about. But he's saying basically, I think if, if I value my life, or if I value things above this cost, if I value my life in this world more than I value Jesus and the life in the next world, if I value things, if I love other things, then this is an obstacle, something that gets in the way of discipleship. It's those who are willing to lose their lives for Jesus will find true life. That's a paradox, isn't it? And it's a, it's a theme we're familiar with. That's a very well-known saying of Jesus, but it's a really difficult one to think through what it means. What does it mean to lose your earthly life? Some Christians have, have answered this this way. Um, does anybody know where that is? You should. It's an Irish one. I'll give you a clue. Does anybody know where that is? It's a tough one. Yes, yes. So this is St. Kevin's Bed. If you're in Glendalough, the upper lake, you look across and that's where Kevin, uh, who started the monastic settlement in Glendalough way back in whatever, what was it, I don't know, 6th century, 7th century. Um, he came to there and he, that's the, that's one form of losing your life in the early church this was a really very big option you you got away with everything from everything and you went to be a monk uh, you got a, literally away into the wilderness the quiet uh, into simplicity and you live in a cave that's that's one way of losing your life isn't it that's a pretty radical option i, I don't see too many of us uh, thinking yep that sounds like a good one um but that was a, that was a very strong picture of the early church. You think out Skellig Michael, eight miles off the coast in Kerry. Has anyone been there? I know it's on Star Wars, but has anyone been there? Um, I was there once, and it was one of my, I think, probably all-time favourite places in Ireland ever. If you ever get a chance to get Skellig Michael, I think it's fantastic. You have to, you know, you're six, six, eight miles across the sea in an open boat. You have 700 feet of windy staircase up to the top of this pinnacle of rock, and these monks built this monastic settlement on top of this pinnacle of rock. You can't get much more away from the world than that, can you? And they didn't know America was out there. This was the ends of the earth. This was as far as you could go to the ends of the earth. And that's where they were building their Christian settlement and their community. Um, that's one way of losing your life. You know, you know, so pretty radical. It's, so it's the, it's the way of asceticism. It's the way of rejection of the world. It's getting out of the world and, and, and removing yourself almost from it altogether. This monastic type of of response. Um, I know it's often a tangent, but when I was up there, I was thinking, gosh, what would it be like? What, what must have they have thought when they were up on this pinnacle of rock in their island off the sea and they see these Viking ships coming around the bottom of the rock and I'm going, oh, there's nowhere to go here, guys. It's because the Vikings eventually came and wrecked the place. But um, that's another story. That's one response to how, what's it mean to lose your life? It, does it mean getting out of the world altogether? 
Um, I, don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is necessarily saying. And part of the, part of the weakness of this, there were great strengths in this, but part of the weakness is it takes you out of the world. It takes you away from people. It removes you. I think God wants us to be in the world. He wants us to be out there. Now, I think we need a bit of humor. Does, um, does anybody like Gary Larson? I think these are great. Um, I just love and the reason I'm putting that up there is to say, another way sometimes Christians say, what does it mean to lose your life? Well, it means being miserable. It means never having fun. Um, it, never, it means sort of this rejection of life itself. Um, and I think some Christian spirituality can head that way. Really serious all the time. Um, and there's no space to celebrate the good things of God gives us humor he gives us relationships he gives us good food he gives us friends you know life is good and it's to be celebrated god is a god who gives us pleasure so i don't think losing your life means rejecting pleasure rejecting good things that god creates so what does it mean i'm not sure <laughs> i'm not sure what's the next one what does it mean to take up your cross so this is, this, these were some, is it a rejection of pleasure and fun? I'm a Presbyterian, I can tell this joke, I'm a Presbyterian. And um, Presbyterians are people of deep, deep joy. You know, <laughs> those Presbyterians that just never surfaces. <laughs> I had a friend um, who, was a, who was a Presbyterian, well, a free Presbyterian from the Scottish Isles, the west of Scotland. And she grew up there, and this was in, back in a while ago. Maybe it's still like that. You know, when the Sabbath came, the Sunday, nobody did anything. You know, you went to church about five times, but that was about it. Nothing else could happen. You could hardly even go for a walk. You couldn't do, turn on the TV, you didn't read any papers. And she would joke, they even took the swing out of the budgie's cage on the Sabbath. <laughs> nobody was going to have any fun, you know? That was it. I think we need, we need a theology of humor. It isn't rejection of life itself. Life is a gift. But what does it mean then to live under the shadow of the cross? I think each of us have to answer that question for ourselves. What Jesus is saying, to follow him involves ultimate loyalty. It isn't, now, let me be very care, careful here and clear. This is not about shame and guilt. It's not about guilt tripping people into feeling, oh, I'm not doing enough. That's not what this is about. Jesus is saying, if you're following me, you're going to find life in me. If you look for life elsewhere, you're not going to find it. You're actually going to lose it. It's, look, it's following him, loving him wholeheartedly is where we find life. And that life isn't rejection of the world. It isn't humorless. It isn't having no pleasure and fun. It's not that. But I think it's ultimately a matter of love. That we love him wholeheartedly. And each one of us has to answer that question for ourselves. What does that look like for me to love Jesus wholeheartedly first before any other loyalties? There's a great theologian of the early church, St. Augustine, um, and you, we we can disagree with some things he said. I'm not going to get into those, but he was a great theologian of love. And he says, very famous, and I think uh, Bono and you too sort of riffed off this at one point. He says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless 
until they find their rest in you. You know, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are looking for meaning and significance and purpose. And we'll look in different places. Jesus is saying, really, what discipleship's all about is, is resting in him. That's where we find true life. It's paradox. It's by losing our lives, not living for ourselves, but living for Jesus, that we find true life. And that's what it means to live in light of the cross. That's the costly way of discipleship love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of life. You're a God who's made us to experience life in all its fullness. You've said you've come to give us life in all its fullness. You've come to give us joy and meaning and purpose. And this paradox that if we look for those things elsewhere, we will not find them, but it is by loving you wholeheartedly we find life. And I pray for each of us, I pray for myself, I pray for each of us, that as we consider and reflect what this word means to us, would you lead and guide us, uh, reveal yourself to us. And we thank you that you're a God who has our good right at the forefront. And you know it is that we are, our destiny is created to worship and follow you. And in doing so, we find true meaning and purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.